From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, researcher, author, Linda Moulton Howe from EarthFiles.com is standing by. She, of course, one of the legends in the uh, the field of ufology. She'll be here in Toronto, in fact, for the Alien Cosmic Expo, happening June 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. That's That's at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. And I will be there on the 24th, moderating a roundtable on disclosure. And that's happening at 1.30. Linda will be, she's going to be very busy there. She's going to be presenting a documentary at 7 p.m. on the Friday, Friday, June the 22nd. And then she'll be speaking Saturday at 7 p.m. on um, uh, symbols and binary code and high strangeness. And then she'll be participating in the Disclosure Roundtable on uh, Sunday at 1.30. Hey, if you love The Conspiracy Show, you're also going to love Conspiracy Unlimited. That's my new podcast. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's right, three times a week. You can listen and subscribe at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. And if you like rock and roll and strange mysteries, and who doesn't, uh, check out my new podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. It's part of the Jericho Network, Chris Jericho of WWE fame. In association with Westwood One, new episodes drop every Wednesday at midnight, 12 a.m. Eastern. I just Google it. it it's, uh, again, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. It's available everywhere. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Quickly, let me introduce the boys in the band before we get rolling. My fine rockabilly friend Ian Robertson is in Nashville tonight. I'm uh, guessing he's performing with the, uh, the band. In his stead on the 69 Fender Telecaster, guitar technical producer Sebastian Hearn. Sebastian, uh, welcome. Here in studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin. Story producer Albert Venzel and on the Hammond B3 live stream producer Ryan White. Okay, much to discuss. Linda Moulton Howe is an American investigative journalist, regional Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker, best known for her work as a ufologist and an advocate of a variety of conspiracy theories, including her investigation of cattle mutilations and conclusions they are performed by extraterrestrials. She's also noted for her speculations that the U.S. government is colluding with aliens. Uh, beginning in uh, February of 2017, Linda's new web TV series, Truth Hunter, reported by Linda Moulton Howe, uh, that debuted on the Gaia Digital Network back, as I say, back in 2017. Uh, on February uh, 20, in February of 2016, she was honored at the L, uh, the Los Angeles Hilton with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Conscious Life Expo and the History Channel's Ancient Aliens TV program. Uh, and she has been interviewed on that program for every season, I think. What are they, around nine or ten seasons now? It's getting up there. In addition to her TV production, Linda produces, reports, edits the award-winning Science, Environment, and Earth Mysteries news website, earthfiles.com, which has been honored with a web award for New Standard News Standard of Excellence and W3 Silver Award in the News category, an award for Standard of Excellence presented by the Internet's Web Award Association 
and Encyclopedia Britannica Award for Journalistic Excellence. We could fill the whole show with just her awards, but it's always great to have Linda Moulton Howe uh, with, with us on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Linda. How are you? Well, Richard, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to going back uh, to Toronto. I've been there several times, uh, and I always like it so much. And that uh, I have a computer tech there who works and helps me. I have uh, various people who uh, try to keep me inside of the loop of what's happening not only in Toronto but Canada. And, you know, there's something that I don't think that a lot of people know, especially people in Canada, that if you go back to where I uh, was doing medical programming uh, in hospitals and covering surgery and doing hard science uh, like astronaut training and doing that in Los Angeles and in Boston and then being hired to be the director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver and was working almost primarily in science and medicine, the environment and issues affecting uh, the states that I have been working in, when there were headlines in the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News uh, back in uh, 1979 about bloodless, trackless animal mutilations. Mm -hmm. And that was the Alice in Wonderland transition working on that project, trying to get to the bottom of it, trying to understand what could possibly take the same pattern of excisions from animals around the world, as I learned, without even leaving tracks of any kind around bodies lying in face powder dry dirt. And I was coming from a very hard left-brain background. I had done my uh, master's degree uh, in communication at Stanford University where I made documentaries for two years. I did one documentary for the Stanford Medical Center they used for 19 years. Uh, my master's thesis was with the Stanford Linear Accelerator on the brand new beginnings of having computers analyze bombardments uh, in uh, the accelerators. All of that, that was my life and it is my life. Why the UFO ET part got added to essentially uh, somebody who has been a producer, writer, director, editor in science, medicine, and environment is because of those animal mutilations. And that the part that surprised me was as I began to just start doing the fundamental research that you start doing in, on any project as an investigative reporter and producer, I realized that some of the very first mutilations that were reported before the famous case of a horse in southern Colorado were in Canada. Ah. And in my first book, An Alien Harvest, on page six, uh, just this is brief, but it sets a tone here that they are uh, doing the Alien Cosmic Expo in Toronto uh, through MUFON because of history having to do with Wilbur Smith mm -hmm. and uh, other people in Canada who have, in one way or another, worked with or collaborated with the United States on so many different UFO, whether it was crashes or sightings. Well, here is a part of history that preceded some of the cases in the United States, and I'm uh, now uh, going to 
that in September of 1967, when the horse was found dead and mutilated in southern Colorado, and that, those headlines went around the world. It was the uh, first big international story today. We would say it went viral uh, that was establishing that this mysterious phenomenon of the same pattern of tissue being taken with no tracks around the horse. There were no tracks of any kind around the horse in Colorado uh, for 100 feet. Well, here it is. There were similar, this is quoting from An Alien Harvest, my first book. There were similar bizarre horse deaths reported in Canada. The month before, in August 1967, meaning before the horse that made the international headlines, on the Sarcy Reserve near Twin Bridges in Alberta, Canada, a dead horse was found where a witness claimed a, quote, domed saucer craft had been seen earlier that day. Then, in early November of 1967, two horses were found dead near Livingston, Ontario. One had a long cut on its neck. The other had, quote, its throat sliced and the jugular vein cut off, yet there was not one single evidence of any blood. That was November 6, 1967. On November 5th, the day before, near Livingston, a man reported seeing a large UFO. After it disappeared, a sulfurous odor remained in the air. Those were coming in some of the, uh, uh, we'll say not the major Toronto or major Vancouver newspapers, but this was an, uh, a Kingston, Ontario, Canada, they call themselves in French, Ray Rebault. Bureau, uh, meaning uh, the news news bureau, and that there were some of the smaller uh, newspapers in uh, Canada and the United States that were on an ongoing basis. They were having these reports of bloodless, trackless animal mutilations that the major, uh, like the New York Times, would avoid. And people say to me all the time, Linda, you're a reporter. You investigate uh, things that are really happening. Why hasn't the New York Times put on its front page stories about animal mutilations? And here is my answer and my insight uh, that I think that you, Richard, would probably agree. Going back to World War II, our government and the Western Allies had their backs up against the wall by Hitler and Germany. And the, we didn't have a defense department then. We didn't have a Pentagon. We had a war office. But there was something then that is still now, and it was Walt Disney. Walt Disney doing cartoons and Walt Disney working in feature films. And our government went to Walt Disney to get his help for a variety of uh, PR and various things that were calculated to help our government and the Western allies uh, in their both psychological and bullet war with Hitler. After the war ended in 1945, Walt Disney continued to work with what evolved into the Department of Defense, uh, the creation of the CIA, NSA, DIA. Uh, Walt Disney uh, did many things for our government as a loyal patriot. Also wired in that same period of time, 
uh, post-World War II, came CBS, NBC, and ABC. And as if I've had uh, discussions with people, quite frankly, who got paychecks, uh, whether it was on contract or that was uh, who they worked for full-time and working as an executive in uh, the media was their uh, the job that was what they how they influence but the it the job at NBC or CBS covered up the fact that they were actually working for an intel agency or a counter intel agency and that right from all of those years of 1945 on that we have had tremendous influence by intel and counter intel in Hollywood. Linda, I got to take a break here. Yeah, it exactly. almost sounds like an early incarnation of Project Mockingbird. Yes. We'll pick that up on the other side. Linda Moulton Howe, EarthFiles.com, coming to Toronto, the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, Toronto Marriott Hotel, and uh, AlienCosmicExpo.com for tickets and more information. Back with our conversation right after this. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Linda Moulton Howe is with us, earthfiles.com. She'll be in Toronto at the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Uh, let's just uh, uh, finish up this um, fascinating discussion we were having about uh, Walt Disney uh, and his role in creating, I guess, sort of this firewall uh, around mainstream media and, and, and reportage, and I, I mentioned that it sounded like a kind of an early incarnation of, of uh, Mock- Mockingbird. Yes, exactly. And this is uh, part of the answer to when people say, uh, how could UFOs and ETs that people in the human abduction syndrome have been interacting with since at least the 1950s, uh, how could it be kept from everyone? Well... This is the insight. Back in the uh, war years and in the 1950s, the uh, Central Intelligence Agency didn't come into existence until September 18, 1947. That was under Harry S. Truman. And at about uh, within two to three years, Operation Mockingbird was like a large-scale program of this new CIA uh, beginning in the early 1950s, and the whole goal was to manipulate news media for propaganda purposes. That's what they had tried to do in World War II before the CIA, uh, working with people like Walt Disney, and then it became formalized. And it was uh, in the early years of the Cold War, after the hot World War II, uh, that uh, there was a, a reporter uh, named Deborah Davis, and uh, she wrote a, a biography of Catherine Graham, and mm. the Grahams were owners of the Washington Post. Right. And it was that uh, it, that she was sharing the insight that the CIA was running an Operation Mockingbird, and that they were trying to influence reporters having to do with the Cold War, anti-Soviets, things that this government did not want Americans to pay any attention to whatsoever. And at the top of the list was UFOs, ETs, human abductions, 
animal mutilations and the fact that the government had policies of denial that were official and had been signed in a secret executive order by Harry S. Truman, bringing Majestic 12 into being, uh, that had friends of his that were in military and science, uh, medicine, and uh, business, and that they were this advisor group uh, that Truman, uh, then I understand Eisenhower, Baton kept being passed, that they were trusting to help guide them and what they thought was an impossibly difficult situation. And here, when you jump to May of 2018, and that uh, in Toronto, there's going to be a lot of people going because they are very interested in truth and facts, not counterintelligence and manipulation. And that all over the planet now, more than I have ever seen, are more, uh, conferences that are having more uh, audiences that seem to have already passed the government's policies of denial. I have uh, 20-year-olds that run up to me, Linda, we know we're not alone in the universe. Tell us about, and then they will have heard a radio or television, or they would have read my books or uh, something, and they want then to jump past the question, are we alone in the universe? Of course we are, they say. Uh, what types of non-humans? Well, what do abductees report on this planet and have been reporting for decades? And then the younger audiences say, what are the agendas? And that is what the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, all of the projects for the last 70 years, they have not wanted the American public or any public to get to the more sophisticated part of the chess game yeah we've got an alien presence probably several and they've been interacting and based underground on this planet for maybe millions of years well when you start going from being enthralled by the idea of beautiful lights and then the lights have structure and then inside the structure are either androids, cyborgs, robots, clones that have been made by a very advanced intelligence that might be 30 light years from Earth. The prime intelligence doesn't bother to go out in these craft, and that means that the vast majority of what has been retrieved, and our government has known this for a long time, from many of these crash sites around the planet are clones, androids, robots, or cyborgs. That might explain why during an alien abduction uh, they seem so cold uh, and, and uh, clinical and cruel because there's, there's, no, there's no emotion there. There's... They're programmed, exactly. They are programmed to do work on this planet, in this gravity, in this atmosphere, and to deal with very difficult Homo sapien sapien. And the, the agenda question, it has now become so complex, Richard, I'm sure you're aware, that once upon a time in the 50s and the 60s, uh, most discussions were, was it round? Was it a cigar? Was it a lens shape? What color was it if it glowed? Uh, did you see any beams? 
today, the sophistication of discussions among those who try to investigate this on behalf of trying to get to real facts and share them with an American public that is supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people and should be first on the list of priorities to get facts, to get truth, not to be manipulated and deceived. Uh, and that that's why I and others, we uh, work so hard because we know we're not alone. We know that there are alien intelligences interacting with this planet in the past, now, and probably will be in the future for a long time. So what is it? What is it they do? What is it that they want? Well, at the top of that list, from the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested, whether it's sperm and ovum from people in the abductions, or it is a whole bunch of different tissues from horses and from uh, cattle. Think of every domestic animal that you can think of on a farm and then add deer, elk, reindeers. This, this is a huge gamut of earth life. And people say, well, if, if we've got non-humans and they are uh, mutilating animals, that we humans also, you might say, mutilate and, and uh, sell in stores and eat all the time. But when you jump over to the question, uh, well, what about humans? Uh, my honest answer, and this is a really honest answer, uh, in uh, the 40 years that I've been trying to get to the bottom of all of this, I have maybe five total cases that have come to me from people who were perhaps the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was one case, and that it has involved a strange, bloodless excision in a body that is found in a car by the side of the road or uh, somebody in a lake or uh, on a street in San Francisco. But there is never any eyewitness, and therefore there's never any proof and in some of the cases, of which there still are not many that I've ever heard of, uh, they've been explained away as murders. Now, if you took 70 years of animal mutilations, we're talking maybe 20,000, 30,000 animals over those years. So if I have only five cases that might fall into some interaction with humans, and I really get a lot of traffic and always have from people who are whistleblowers, have worked in the government, uh, people who are abductees and all. If we had any wholesale operation of uh, mutilations of humans on Earth, I think it would have emerged as a clear pattern. It never has. Now, David Politis and I were just up in uh, Colorado at a conference, the Mile High, um, uh, I think it's Mile High Mystery Conference, and we were talking about animal mutilation, Sasquatch, and uh, missing people, and, and animal mutilations. And he will say 
the same issue. He has no proof of an absence. If you have a lot of missing people, you have no proof in a, a forensic way or in a police way of anything. All you can say is uh, in X states or X parks that there are Y numbers of missing people on an average annual basis. If they are not recovered, if they are not found, they are a missing. And the missing doesn't have any explanation, which is why they are a huge mystery. So the... The bottom line to all of this, because there's so much, and I'm going to be talking about a fascinating uh, aspect of military interaction with a phenomena that has to do with binary code, but the, what I'm trying to communicate with you tonight and with audiences in general everywhere I go, we are dealing with a 16-layer chess game. It is... As far as I can tell, it is woven into uh, the most ancient past of our planet, going back into the time of Samaria and Anunnaki and before. That whatever we are dealing with, it seems to express a need for our survival and existence. That gives me hope that if we can be stronger as a human race, and be told the truth, and understand everything, good, bad, and neutral, about what our governments know concerning other intelligences uh, based in our solar system, based in Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2, 40 light years from this system, in the next uh, galaxy, Andromeda, uh, what do we know? And that the governments have to stop uh, taking the attitude that we humans are too much babies to take truth about other intelligences in the universe without collapsing. I don't believe that's true at um, all. Linda, we've just got a couple minutes before we go into the next break. I just want to do um, to ask you quickly before we do that, and, and that is uh, on the Friday, uh, at 7 p.m., uh, you're presenting a documentary, I understand. And this is, uh, I believe... Uh, the my guy my uh, Gobekli Tepe. It's about Gobekli Tepe and uh, the symbols there, and ties into uh, the issue of advanced intelligences that can disappear and neutralize gravity, uh, project holograms, and use self-activating software. And that is uh, a documentary that I did and it's uh on a it's available in DVDs at earthfiles.com but I'm going to present it and then talk about it afterwards. Now this is this uh evidence of a of a civilization that predates even Stonehenge, right? Oh god. This, this is in modern day Turkey. Gobekli Tepe is 12,000 years old based on very careful careful layer by layer carbon dating. Uh, by the German archaeologist who began the work in 1994 for the very first time, and we went all the way to 2010, and nobody knew about Gobekli Tepe. Nobody knew about the German archaeologist's work in southern Turkey, six miles from the Syrian border. Nobody knew till 2010. 
And then between 2010 and 2018, the saddest thing, they had excavated about 5% of an enormous hill that has 300 and some 19-ton pillars in rings. And we can talk about this more on the other side of the break. But Klaus Schmidt, the brilliant archaeologist, died swimming in a swimming pool three years ago. And with his death, it's as if everything came to a screeching halt. Wow. All right. Well, uh, that's a cliffhanger. We'll pick that up on the other side. Linda Moulton Howe, EarthFiles.com, coming to the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. AlienCosmicExpo.com for more information and tickets. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Linda Moulton House stays with us. EarthFiles.com coming to Toronto for the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And on the Friday at 7 p.m., she'll be presenting a documentary on uh, Gobekli Tepe. This is uh, this amazing uh, structure, 12,000 years old. Uh, now it was abandoned after about three millennia, right? Uh, and they seem to have backfilled whoever occupied this seemed to want to like bury their tracks but we'll get we'll get to that i want to talk about it was a thousand years after it was built Ah. only that it was completely recovered so it had been built this remarkable 320 19 ton pillars in perfect rings with strange animals in 3d on some of the uh, pillars and all kinds of strange artifacts and it uh, had a purpose that nobody knows except they know from deep ground penetrating radar that these big pillars are still there underground standing up, if you can believe this. So uh, what would have happened? And here's the current hypothesis, that the whole thing was built 12,000 years ago for reasons unknown, quite mysterious, And then 1,000 years after it had been standing and serving some kind of strange purpose, all these 320, 30, 19-ton pillars in rings with animals on them were were covered up. And nobody knows how this whole huge hilltop was covered uh, so uh, well that in 1994, when Klaus Schmidt started working on it as an archaeologist to uncover, he was doing soil compression tests. And as he went, he was doing carbon dating tests. And he began to realize that in his uh, his, uh, soil compression tests, that he was finding a pattern. And the pattern could only match one thing, that once this whole thing had been built, it was covered back up and that he was uncovering it, and that the covering up had a date 1,000 years after it had initially been put up there. And what is so interesting, Richard, is when you go back to 11,500 to 12,000 years ago, something that's still incomprehensible happened on the northern hemisphere side of our world. This is when... 33 large mammals in North America 
Canada, the United States, went extinct. Saber-toothed tigers were found with their spines literally twisted 180 degrees. I've interviewed uh, scientists who have studied this. But this is the famous uh, mammoths that were found with buttercups frozen in their mouths so perfectly that there were still yellow petals in the frozen, fast-frozen mammoths. What in the world happened 11,500 to 12,000 years ago? And there is, are a group of scientists down in uh, the Mesa, uh, uh, Tempe. Tempe, well, there's two. There's one that is in uh, Tucson and some in Tempe uh, in Arizona. And they have uh, presented at science conferences in the past about 10 years uh, evolving hypotheses that either asteroids, comets, something came in from outer space with tremendous speed, uh, fury, causing the atmosphere to catch on fire, carrying the fire down, slamming into the ground all the way from the southern border of the United States, sweeping up through all most of the Middle and West, up through Canada. They call it uh, the Younger Dryas period, and there is a black mat, M-A-T-T-E, it literally is there, the hundreds, millions of square miles. And in this black mat, which uh, was caused by some huge fire at that period, there are nanodiamonds. The nanodiamonds are everywhere throughout the black mat. And the only thing that scientists who are physicists and, and uh, astrophysicists can conclude is that something so huge with so much speed, so much pressure, hit these millions of square miles. And there was fire, but that pressure of carbon, fire and pressure could create nanodiamonds. And that that is why there are nanodiamonds throughout all of this. Well then, on the other side of the world, at the Mediterranean, the uh, glaciers from the last glacial period that began, uh, hit its height 18,000 years ago, it was warming up at about 12,000 years ago. And as it turns out, there is no evidence of ice 11,500 to 12,000 years ago uh, in the Mediterranean. That means that what Gobekli, where it was, was dry. But somebody knew something covered that big thing up, and guess what? When you look at everything that happened on the North American side, you can't help but say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that something that created Gobekli Tepe knew that something horrible was coming in on the opposite side of the earth and could destroy a lot, and it did, and covered up Gobekli Tepe. That is the working hypothesis of Several people. They got out of Dodge just before the yes. uh, the Shinola hit the fan, as they say. Um, now, Klaus Schmidt, he, he was 61, had a heart attack in a pool. Is there any question as to whether that may have, is that a suspicious death in your mind? Is there a connection, perhaps, because he was finding something he shouldn't be sticking his nose in? What do you think? You're asking the questions that a lot of people ask. He was uh, in excited about his work, 
He was enthusiastic, meticulous, great. And to go into a pool and be only 61 years old. And, and you know, Richard, he was used to climbing. Uh, all of us who went to Gobekli Tepe with Robert Schock, uh, the geologist uh, who did his Ph.D. at Yale, we, that's how I was there in June of 2012, we climbed up to the top, and it was, we're talking arduous. These were arduous climbs to get up to where you could even, and then you have to climb down into where Gobekli Tepe is. He would have been in pretty good shape, it sounds like. Listen, he I would gotta have t- to, you think so. I have to take another quick time out back with Linda Moulton Howe, and we'll uh, continue to talk about Gobekli Tepe and more here on The Conspiracy Show. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Now just think of this. At the end of the last ice age, the world is populated by nomadic people, hunter-gatherers, and we're expected to believe that they constructed these, <laughs> this amazing temple with its these ornate, sophisticated depictions of animals uh, these, I mean, uh, something like this would have required a great deal of stability and social structure. It would have taken hundreds and hundreds of people uh, to put this thing together. Uh, no, uh-uh, not buying it. So, who, who who built this thing, Linda? Well, I'll tell you. The first morning that uh, we got there, I traveled with about thirty people, headed by Robert Schock, Ph.D., Yale University who contributed with John Anthony West to the very first news about 1992 that the Sphinx was 40, maybe 14,000 years old, and John Anthony West thought it was maybe 40,000 years old, and that made headlines on the front page of the New York Times back then. So that same Robert Schock led this group of us to Gobekli Tepe, and the goal was for us to climb the hill so that we would be right at the crest in order to go down into, because you, you climb and then you go down into a bowl uh, to enter where um, many of the pillars that have been excavated are, and that we would get there a little bit before sunrise. So right when the sun would break the horizon, uh, we would be able to go down <clears throat> into Gobekli Tepe. So I was standing, facing, the sun came up, it hit my face. I did a 180 degree, not trying to uh, put my body in any position. I just, 180 degree turn from the sun. And as I looked down, I could see the tops, because they're like T's, like think of a big long uh, pillar, and then it has a cross uh, beam on top. Uh, they they refer to them as these T-beams, and two of them had a little bit of sunlight on them, and that intrigued me. So this is my very first steps down. Um, we walked down the hill on dirt, and then you reached wooden pathways that had been made so that tourists and the scientists and uh, the people helping excavate could all go on these wooden paths uh, throughout uh, as they were excavating. And that could get me down close 
to the tea beams that I were seeing touched by sunlight. And I was about the only person who walked straight down at that moment of sunrise on June, uh, it was June 12th or 13th of 2012. And as I stood there by myself, here, Richard, is the, was the epiphany for me. All of my life, I have traveled this planet. I have been in very dangerous situations, beautiful situations, awe-inspiring situations. I literally have been in 20 or 30 countries. I've seen a lot, done a lot, and what has guided me, protected me, helped me to survive has been my gut. I always get instantaneous impressions about what I'm in, where I am, uh, feelings of anything. I've just always depended upon it. And so when I got down to that bottom wooden path closest to those beams, I couldn't feel anything. I, I remember st standing there thinking, this is the weirdest place I have ever been. This is not recognizable to the human instinct, to the human mind. Later, I was to read that the Smithsonian Magazine sent a reporter there in 2010 also. Uh, had it come before we were there in June. And that the Smithsonian reporter wrote beautiful words also about standing amid these stones and not finding any recognizable feelings, thoughts, it is so alien, and it comes across as alien. It comes across as unknowable. And to me, that is the mark of something that surpasses human understanding. And when you combine that with 300 and some 19-ton pillars that were put in rings they weren't put there by human labor, I think. And, and Robert Schock came down and to my right at one point, and he said, Linda, I've been staring at these from above. And he said, you know what keeps coming into my mind are tuning forks. Mm. And he said, do you think it's possible that this entire place, when it was completely active 12,000, 11,000 years ago after, before it was covered up, that it was made specifically to resonate in all of this limestone crystal with these strange T-bars that remind you of tuning forks. He said maybe this entire operation was that craft would come down with a certain resonant frequency, get all of this resonating, and perhaps this was tied into the pyramids, the stone circles around the earth in what would have been 100% free global energy and communication. Is it on a ley line? It's a very good question, and I remember that we discussed all of this with Robert Schock in uh, Gobekli Tepe when we were there, and for some reason, as I recall... There was confusion about that. Uh, I think that there had been some uh, compass and some magnetic tests. And as I recall in the discussion, 
it was anomalous, and it was anomalous in a strange way that left the answer to your question un, uh, unknown, or uh, they di- didn't have data, or that there were magnetic anomalies that then uh, contra- uh, contradicted or blunted the ability to get a clear answer. And I don't know if you went back to Gobekli Tepe today, would you get the same magnetic anomalies then, or does it change, and is that part of the uh, question about Gobekli Tepe? And uh, in England, when you're out in crop circles or you go to churches, there's absolutely no confusion whatsoever. You're on a ley line. And I do not know why that was not clear in uh, southern Turkey. What about these skulls they found there that seem to have been carved post-mortem? You're right, and uh, there are so many eerie thoughts about if Gobekli Tepe had three-dimensional, and for our audience, this means think of heavy limestone pillars, uh, several, uh, like three yards, two yards high, and uh, not too thick, but uh, they're heavy. But coming out of many of them were animals. They are not glued on. There is no interface. There's no border in between the animals and the limestone. And that means that however this was done, these large pillars and the animals 3D on them were conceived and executed as one piece of huge limestone. Who can do that? Right. I mean, keep in mind, this is before the advent of writing. This is before the Sumerian culture. That's right. Unbelievable. Uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you about on um, on the Saturday at 7 o'clock, your talk yes. on symbols and binary code. Yes. Uh, just give us a, a, a taste of what that's going to be about. Some of your audience may know about RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge, and uh, I've been working with John Burroughs, the only person there at that big military base to have been engulfed in light twice. Well, his sidekick, uh, Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston, Mm -hmm. on December 26, 1980, remained somewhat conscious when John lost all memory, and that uh, Jim Penniston didn't tell a single soul until we were working on Ancient Aliens in 2010, that that night, when there was a bright flash of light, and he and John, John remembers the flash of light, but it's John, uh, or Jim Penniston, who had zeros and ones start running through his mind and did not stop as he walked around the triangle, dragging his fingers over the symbols, the zeros and ones were going through his mind. And that, according to Jim, it was not until he was home, couldn't sleep because the zeros and ones wouldn't stop going across his mind's eye, and that he got up and he was restless and he wanted it to stop, and a thought word came into his mind, sit down and write this. And he had his notebook that he always carried for uh, crashes, airplane crashes, everything. Jim Pennison was known by every military person as always carrying a notebook that he wrote and drew in at uh, airplane crashes. 
and he pulled out that notebook. He got a pen. He said he sat down at a desk, and the zeros and ones started pouring out of his fingers with a pen, and he thought it was like a miracle. And as they trailed off in his mind's eye, he stopped writing them in his notebook, and he had filled up seven or eight pages. And uh, later, I, John, Jim Tennyson, others have worked on the binary code that Jim Tennyson uh, had in the notebook. But what has happened is when I started reporting about what had happened to Tennyson in the forest, I started getting other military whistleblowers saying that they, too, have had endless zeros and ones after encounters with lights, with beings, with craft, and some of it has been translated, and some of the translations are shocking. Symbols and binary code and high strangeness phenomena, that'll be uh, Linda Moulton Howe's talk on Saturday. That's June 23rd at 7 p.m. Again, this is part of Alien Cosmic Expo at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. I'll be there on the Sunday, the 24th, moderating the roundtable. That takes place at 1.30. Linda Moulton Howe will be part of that, along with Richard Dolan, Stanton Friedman, Victor Vigiani, and, of course, uh, Grant Cameron. Uh, Linda, uh, earthfiles.com is the website. Thank you so much. Look forward to uh, seeing you at ACE. Hey, Richard, thanks. And I look forward to seeing all of you who listen tonight come and shake my hand. Thank you. Linda Moulton Howe. All right, when we come back... The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, James Abbott, serious, serious researcher right here on the program. Stay with us.